0: I will sing of steadfast love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Those are the first four verses of Psalm 101, which along with Psalm 109 are the psalms appointed for today, Wednesday, March the 30th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We're looking, continuing our look at Jeremiah's prophecy, chapter 18, verses 1 to 11. And then in the gospel, we're in John 6, verses 27 to 40. And in the uh, epistle to the Roman church, chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. So, Jeremiah is continuing to to call out against the people uh, and and raise the father's objections to their activities and to their sin and why he's coming against them in judgment. So he begins here the the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord: "Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words." So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. In other words, it it, it wasn't coming out the right way. And he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. There's a lot of prophetic words that that speak of the potter and the clay, and that we are the clay, and he is the potter, and we'd be molded by him as long as we are submitted and yielded to him. And so what, what God's saying here is, is that, that I am the potter, and you're the clay, and I have the ability to change my mind. I have that freedom that Paul is saying you don't have, and I have the freedom to change my mind concerning the edicts that I make. And we'll see in various places throughout Scripture where, where you'll, say, you'll see, particularly like in Esther, where the king, has, Ahasuerus, has given a, uh, an edict— and because it, it comes from the Medes and the Persians, it can't be rescinded. And it's the same thing that you see sort of in Roman Catholicism with certain proclamations, not all proclamations that popes make, but, but some, those that are ex cathedra, when he's in a very special way speaking on a matter, then that becomes something you can't go back on. And that's how the founding of the Anglican Church happened, actually, was Henry wanted a divorce, the Pope was hemmed in because for two reasons. One is Catherine of Aragon's um, uncle was the Roman Emperor at the time. And so you can't make him mad. But the other part of it is is that popes are considered to be infallible when they speak ex cathedra. And that this this failure to, to get divorced, the, the inability of, of to grant a divorce, that divorce is wrong, period in every circumstance, meant that he couldn't do anything. He had already made a special dispensation to even for Henry to to marry Catherine because she had been his dead brother's wife. And Henry comes to understand later that what he's done is sin by taking his brother's wife in this way. And so the pope is hemmed in he doesn't have any options here. So what happens then is is that leaders in England convince Henry that that in these matters, he is not only the king, he is also the spiritual leader of his people. And so the pope in England at least, is subservient to Henry. And so he can make his own decisions to do what he wants. And so that's what he chooses to do. But the problem the Pope had, as I said, is is that, that he was hemmed in by this belief in the infallibility of, of the Pope in these matters. So God says, I'm not bound by any of these things. I, I can say this and then change my mind later based on the response of the people to my edict. I have that freedom. I'm not bound by any law or any idea that says I can't change my mind. So then the word of the Lord came to me after he sees the potter spoiled in the the clay, spoiled in the potter's hand, and then reworked into a different kind of vessel. He says, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom, then I'll pluck it up and break down and destroy it. And if that nation concerning which I've spoken turns from its evil, I'll relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And that's exactly what happens in the book of Jonah. God relented of the disaster that he intended to do towards the nation of uh, to the Babylonians. And so we see this, and God makes this very clear, but this is language that he has used again and again, beginning all the way back in the Exodus when he relented of the disaster that he was bringing against his people. In the book of Joel, when he d- talks about declaring a solemn fast, that the the Babylonians don't know the Lord, and so what they say is is that maybe he'll just relent of the disaster that he has uh, decreed against us. In Joel, he's speaking to people who know the Lord. He says maybe he'll relent of the decree that he has spoken of the disaster that he's spoken against you, and who knows, he might leave behind a blessing. So they have greater expectations. Because they know the Lord, and they have a history in the Lord than the Babylonians do. They just know that there's a prophecy that they're going to be destroyed. And so here God's saying, hey, if the people turn and repent, then I have every right to relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom, and I'll build it up and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do it. So God says, I can change my mind, and it's not whimsical that I would do that. It, no, I don't do it on a whim. I do it based on the, what I see. I'm not bound to bless people who are doing evil. So he says, now, therefore, say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you return every one from his evil way and amend your ways and your death. I mean he gave him a promise, right? That if you if you do this, if you repent and you relent of your evil, then I will relent of the disaster that I've intended against you. And it's exact it's as simple as that. I mean they have a very simple choice. It's the simple choice that Moses lays out in Deuteronomy. Do you want to be cursed or do you want to be blessed? It's the same um dilemma that's laid out by joshua who says choose life i mean it's it's always the thing that's laid before god's people and in the gospel today we're going to see it there as well jesus is going to put something on offer but they have to accept the offer so he says don't work for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life which the son of man will give you now he's speak and remember to the people that he fed two days before the day before that and and now they've come the next day, and Jesus has looked at him and said, it's not because of the signs that you came, it's because your bellies were full. And you want more food. That's what you actually want. <clears throat> For on him, the Son of Man, the Father has set his seal. And they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And that betrays the attitude, right? The attitude is, what do we have to do? There's something to do here. If we do these things, then then you'll bless us, right? I mean, that, that's, that's the impression that they have is is that, that he'll give them this food that endures to eternal life, and they want to know what do they have to do to get that food. Well, what did they have to do to get the food the day before? They had to show up. They had to believe that Jesus was not only a great teacher— But they had to believe also that he was capable of doing these things, like feeding them in that place. And so, but now they want to flip it around and say, "What do we have to do?" Jesus answered them, "This is the work of God, that you believe in Him who is sent." You know, that little exchange reminds me of um, the day of Pentecost, when after Peter preaches and and the Spirit convicts them of sin of the crucifixion of Jesus, their response is, "What must we do to be saved?" And Peter says, repent and believe. And I'm sure that most of them are looking at him thinking, you said he's the Messiah, and we killed the Messiah. I'm not sure that repent and believe and be baptized is going to be enough. I- I'm thinking that we, there's probably, I don't know what sacrifice would be acceptable for the death of Messiah, but there's got to be something more we have to do than that. And it's the beginning beginning of accepting him, beginning of repenting of our sins, and and then walking in a new way. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. Believe in the one whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? So before they wanted to know what they had to do, and now they want to know what's he going to do to prove it to them. Well, he's just fed them. 5,000 people with five little barley loaves and two small fish— and apparently that's not good enough. It was good enough yesterday for him to be the prophet and for them to want to make him king. But today, well, it's a new day. So what are you going to do? And they were already following him. It said in the beginning part of John 6 that they were following him because the, they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. But here, no. They're going to prove that Jesus' has cynicism towards them, that you're not following him because the signs, you're following him because your bellies are full. So they they ask him what sign he's going to perform, and, and in case, you know, he has to think about it for a minute, they go ahead and propose the sign. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. In other words, we are here for the food. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. That is so eerily reminiscent of the Samaritan woman at the well to whom Jesus had promised these rivers of living water welling up from within. And she said, sir, give, us, give me this water always that I may not have to come here to this place and get water. And so here they respond with the gracious offer of Jesus, this bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They respond in the same way that woman responded. Jesus knew how to evoke an image and provoke a response. Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And we know they didn't believe because they proposed a sign. They said, we haven't seen enough. We don't know enough. You haven't shown us enough. For us to come to faith in you. How about you do another sign? How about you do another feeding? So what they're proving is they've not believed. They've, they've believed in him as a rabbi. They believed in him as a prophet. They believed in him as a king. But that's not what he's asking. He's asking them to believe, I am the bread of life. And they're not ready to make that move into that. In the passage from uh, Romans, remember yesterday, Paul had, had made the argument that, um, that the problem we have that causes us to need a Savior is sin that dwells within us, and it overpowers my mind. What I want to do, I don't do because of sin that dwells in my body. And so what has to be dealt with is that sin that dwells in my body, and he says, O oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Sin equals death. So who will, receive, who will um, deliver me from this body of death could also be from this body of sin, and, it, and it's Christ Jesus, and it's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So Paul's saying, here's the resolution to the problem that I presented yesterday. There is therefore no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh and the condemnation of sin in the flesh is on the cross jesus mortified the flesh which is to say that he didn't live for the gratification of a fleshly desire he lived for the glory of the father he set his sights on those things that were above and made his chief aim the glory of the father what is what does the Westminster Confession say is the chief end of man? It's to worship God and to glorify him forever, forever. This is practice and prelude to the worship that we'll do throughout eternity. And so what he's saying is, is that, that he condemned sin in the flesh, and the way he condemned it was on the cross and the death of Christ, the passion of Christ, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And it's the admonition that is the book of Ecclesiastes, which is to say that everything under the sun will pass away, and you can't take that with you into eternity. And so set your mind on the things that are above the sun. And that's exactly what Paul's saying. It's exactly what Jesus is saying here. And it's exactly what Jesus said again and again and again. It's what he said to to Nicodemus. You've got to be born from above. To have the right attitudes towards everything in this life, we need to be born from above. We need the Spirit of God, and we need to live in the Spirit of God. We need to let him have more and more of us because we have all of him now if we're in Christ Jesus. But does he have all of us is the central question, and are we willing to yield to him? Are we willing to say these earthly things don't matter? They're not going to consume me. I want to be consumed by you. That's the mindset we need to have. He says to set the mind of the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. And it's exactly what Jesus is saying to the people here. You you've got your sight set so low, it's unbelievable. You just want some food. So much more is on offer here. I'm the bread of life. But you're not willing to receive it. And all you have to do in order to receive it is to believe. He is just very simple with this. But they won't yield what they know because of what they want. He said the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. And how is it hostile to God? Well, it wants what it wants, whether God says no or not. And it's going to have what it wants for that reason. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so Paul is speaking here. And like I said yesterday, the Judaism doesn't believe in the fall. They don't believe in the complete depravity of man because of the fall. Paul clearly embraces it. The mindset on the flesh is hostile to God, for it doesn't submit to God's law. It cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So in the Anglican world, one of the things we do is we talk about good works prior to conversion. And what, what the uh, articles of religion say is there's no such thing. Any good work done for any reason other than the glory of God is not good. And that really offends people when you say that. But the reality is is, is that we have a low standard for good, and God doesn't. And so we we can do things that we can applaud as people of earth, but the reality is they're not good in the sense that they weren't done for the glory of God and to advance his kingdom. Those are the only things properly called good. And we in the church need to regain that sense of the good, that everything that's good is the way God intends it to be and brings glory to him. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who doesn't have the Spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So Paul's not denying that we will continue to sin. What he's saying is is that won't be our habit and our practice, and we will quickly repent of that and turn in a different direction. We can live at a higher level, I guess, is probably the easiest way to say that. He said, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So that same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the spirit that lives in you. Today, why don't you ask, Lord, more of you and less of me? Why don't you say, Lord, I want to be like you. I want to have the bread of life. Not only that, I want to enjoy the bread of life. And I know that the only way that I can do that is to submit to you. And I submit to you because you are great and you are good and you're loving Father. And to submit is the act of a loving child for a loving Father.